My name is Deborah, Dylan's mum. Welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast. Many ways, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. Tears, tears, tears. Strength. I'm like, I run. She's like, yeah. everyone runs. I'm like, but does everyone go to the Next. Olympics? They're sitting there meditating, going, oh my God, I think I'm meditating. How can this is for meditating? It's like, we had a Wu Tang call. I was like, yo, Dylan, thanks for getting us in. Just love it's it. knuckle puck time. Yeah. It's like, it's like <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Welcome back to Dylan Friends. Jeez. It's a big week this week. We're taking a breather, taking a break, reassessing. It's a mid-season review. It's huge. I've got Sammy here, producer Sam. We're going through the first half of the year. Um, some big special episodes. Welcome to you, Sam. Good to see you. Yeah, you too, Good my to friend. Good to see you out of COVID as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we've been in lockdown in Victoria and it's first day back in. So it's very exciting to be back in studio. Um, sending our love to everyone that was affected by that. Kisses. Absolute nightmare. But um, yeah, great to be back in studio. And I thought, far out, the year's gone quick. It's nearly tax time. What the hell? How what many? The freak? How many are we done? Nineteen. All right, let's nineteen go, episodes. Let's go through them. Yeah, nineteen episodes. So I'll read through who we've done this year. Cheese time flies when you're having fun. We have had on the show this year Dylan Alcott. Wow, that feels like ages ago. Alistair Clarkson, the cockroach, big one, big one. Yeah, may have not done so well for Hawthorne. I think that's the Dylan friend's curse. They're not oh, sure what's happened. Results-wise? Results-wise. Yeah, I remember listening back to that like a week after and you were saying like I'm right on the Hawthorne yeah, train. Yeah, thought they'd win the flag. But still, um, maybe it's building. I think it's building for next year. Yeah, choo-choo. Um, Emma Murray, who, oh, you know how much I love Emma Murray. She was just absolutely genius. Paddy Cripps, Paddy McCartan. We had the footy friends with Ig Horse Teeth, Tommy Sheridan, Tony Armstrong, Mick Barlow. Season previews, which are quite interesting. We're going to have a recap of that in a few weeks as well, which would be good. Um, we had David the Medium on the show. Now, this was a, a really interesting show. I loved chatting with David the Medium. A lot of people didn't love what, that episode. What was some of the um the what's what was the feedback you got? Some was incredible. All right, I'm going to say it was split. Fifty percent of people absolutely loved it, yep. including myself. Yep. Fifty percent of other people were calling me a fraud for for getting him on. Um, interesting. Which is interesting. It's fine. I love feedback. Oh. Love it. I thrive on it. I get better from it. But just so you know, this show. We love talking to people from all backgrounds, all shapes and sizes. Definitely don't want you to believe everything you hear, but I just thought it was good to chat to him, get another perspective. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Really enjoyed that show. Um, so if you haven't heard that one, make sure you check out David the Medium. It's pretty special. David Butterfin from um, Resilience Builders, who was huge. Loved him. Denon Kemp from Bloke in a Bar. Wisdom Galore. Caleb Daniel, one of my favorite players of all time. Mm. Broke the internet with Cade Simpson. Bull Magnets, Tommy Mitchell, Lockie Neal, Matt Rao, and Crypt Dog. Um, Sean Ryan, one of the, the best umpires of all time. Another one of my faves was Filippo Palermo and, and Mike Christides from the Untitled Group, who who run all Australia's biggest festivals, um, have some incredible stories, which was an awesome ep. Um, had Alex Ranson, star. Rancy. Ranso, absolute tiger of a man. He was Very a big boy though. and loved his, loved his chat. And... Recently, we had Chantal Otten in, who I loved that episode. Good feedback from that episode too. was yep. a lot out of our niche, which we're trying to broaden out and do different things, but always stay relevant to our, our community that is so special at Dylan Friends. Um, loved her chat. We'll talk about that one later. Mark Wales, who's just a beast of a man. Mark Wales, SAS. SAS, talking about his time. Super def- Army yeah. Soldiers. To, I don't know if that's what it stands that's for. That's for sure. Okay. Oh, good. Um, but he was fantastic talking about, you know, everything that he's done and we'll definitely get into that one soon too. Matt DeBoer, 
superstar, Mark Howard, um, last week, the Howie Games. Having one of the biggest goats of all time, um, Australian podcasting on was incredible. And you got some feedback for that one. People love that one. Yeah, people love that one. So, um, yeah, don't forget as well, not that it's, uh, as you would learn from Matt DeBoer's episode, if you listen to it, intrinsic Motivation. versus extrinsic motivators. Extrinsic. Okay, well, whatever it is, there's two of them. One's publicly, one's internally motivated. And we don't want to get motivated by feedback, but one thing we do, we do love it. So keep it coming. Yep. Um, yeah, thanks so much for all your eyes and ears at season um, four, 19 episodes in, plenty more to come. But thought it'd be good just to go through and, and recap a few if people have missed them. Reflect. Reflect. Yep. It's always good to do this. We're doing a bit of a leading teams set up and, and probably picked up some of the best um, stories of this this year. But one thing personally I've really enjoyed and I hope everyone else has enjoyed, Sam, which I suppose behind the scenes we've put a lot of effort in, is trying to broaden out the episodes a bit more, not just getting the same thing each week. And I suppose it started off as a, a footy show, but I, I'd like to think it's developed into a little bit more of a holistic show that just gets people from all different backgrounds. And we're always going to stay true to what the show is. We're not going to change it and start doing something some weird shiz, isn't it? Just adding. Just adding and adding just building. Um, so I really hope that you've been okay with that and um, it's been good. But we saw it today, instead of just going through numerically, I suppose, and, and chronologically, we'll just go through some of the topics that we've touched on throughout the seasons and, and sort of talk about them and what episodes have been in that sort of broadened topic. So one thing, Sammy, I've loved about some stories this year is just the hustlers, the go-getters, the say-yeses, the doers per se. Something we've probably talked about nearly in most episodes is how much I love and admire people that just do shit and they just do it and they just back themselves in. And that's not without some setbacks. Um, There's definitely setbacks along the way, but they just back themselves in uh, time after time, time after time again. A few people that stand out was Den and Kemp, um, Howie and Mike and Phil in that space. Let's listen back to a couple of those stories. One of my favourites, I'm probably going to say that 15 times, but one of my favourite little snippets of, of this year was was listening to Mike and Phil about how they started the Untitled Group, losing $1 million at their first ever event. Here it is. Let's go back though. Talk me through that moment where you're going from being the biggest club promoters in, in Melbourne to going, all right, fuck, how are we actually going to start a festival called Beyond the Valley? It was an educational process putting on the first <laughs> Beyond the Valley. because you've, so you've seen the Firefest documentary. <laughs> yeah. They, so give context to what this documentary is for someone who hasn't seen it. Yeah. What's Fire Festival? Fire Festival is a famous festival in the Caribbean where everybody arrived. The festival organizer had no idea what they're doing. So they and arrived. One of the festival organizers, organ, organizers is now was Ja Rule. So yeah, I think. And the other organizer is now, the other organizers now in jail because- <laughs> Fire Festival. Because they, yeah, they, they had nothing on it. And the, the organizers were like putting their hands in there. Like, oh, sorry, no, no, no. And yeah. everyone's stuck in the Bahamas. Like that gave us anxiety, like PTSD of Beyond the Valley year, year one. Um, How old are you? How old are you at this stage? We were 20. 20, when 20 we were. years old. Yep. And tw- like, put that into context. You're 20 years old. There's been a festival dominating for years called Falls Festival, and you are rivaling that now. And that, that first year was such a big learning curve. But I think the main thing that was the huge learning curve was coming out of that at age 20. And, you know, um, you know, we, we suffered a strong, like a big financial loss. Like at that age, and, you know, our company, like oh, we lost a million dollars in our first year. 20 years of age and you lost a million dollars on and your we, first festival. We, we didn't have the money. Really? So, so we're, we're 20 years of age. Like I'm laughing, parents, but that's fucked. Yeah, no, it is. It, like oh, at when, the time. When we say we didn't have the money, we weren't backed by anybody. We didn't have a bank. We didn't have an external investor. It was all of the money that we'd saved in the club and then credit to like, like particularly my family, Phil's family, all our families and sisters. and. Well, even, even with that, like our families 
weren't necessarily like super wealthy. So they like chipped in a little bit to help kind of like lessen the blow, but there was nothing that could like, you know, completely get us by. So we kind of had to pick up the phone and call the suppliers, call talent, um, you know, talent reps and everything and say, look, we're going to roll the dice again on year two. Um, We are so confident that this is, this festival is going to be an institution. It's going to be, you know, have a cult following and we're going to sell out. Just for context, the first year of Beyond the Valley, we sold 7,000 tickets. What's capacity? Capacity. Uh, oh, it's it's, it's about of, how, how big you can build it because with more people, you take on more infrastructure, more right. risk. Uh, on, okay. on that side, at the Phillip Island side, it was roughly 15,000. And then after all the um, the weather issues, we moved the following year to Larder Park. Mm-hmm. So year two of the festival, and we were behind the scenes booking the lineup and we confirmed kind of like our three, the three artists that we wanted most. Uh, there was one that we missed out on, which was Disclosure, but the, they were Jamie XX, Skepta and Flight Facilities. And we, that's when we were like, okay, we got this. Like this is a hundred percent. But still, but still it's, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a tough thing when you're sitting there, you've just lost a million dollars. You're like, but the festival is great. Everyone loved it. The reviews online are great. But to go again, you need to double down. You need to- You could lose another million dollars and then we'd be bankrupt. Oh, we'd be living in Mexico. But that's what I love, man. I love, and this is, and I'm not surprised by this because I've known you guys for years and we've we've done these things together and I know how you work. But I I think that's why before I said I admired what you guys have done and in a way it's inspired me because so many people, so many people are like what if people and they might examine every single situation and they go, oh, but I've got to do this, I've got to do that. But- I just love people that just go, fuck this. I'm going to do it and just see what happens. And, and that's honestly what you did. 20 years of age, you start this festival. It was a success. You've, you've made 15 million mistakes at probably at that first one. Yeah. You've lost a million dollars, but then you double down and go, fuck it. Let's do it again. Learn from everything that we've made a mistake from mm. and benefit from it. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. hundred percent. And it, every year is a constant learning curve. And we felt like we've like. You're 20. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, we're 20. I think that- I was still of, living that, with my mum when I was 20 that, years old. It, so was I. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was the worst part. was the worst part. Like being like, I, I only just moved out the second year of being So first year after that, and they go, so how was the wrap up to the festival? You're just walking, or, eating walking, breakfast yeah, at yeah, mum and, and dad. Yeah, mum in the eye. But yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're sweet for year two, mum. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. fine. Yeah. Imagine losing $1 million. It's a lot of money. It's a lot. It's shit ton and it's at that age as well yeah scary it is frightening look at him now um Denon Kemp let me ask you about him obviously a big friend of the show Denon Kemp from Bloke in a Bar who all honestly very um appreciative of his help and his backing for me this year he's been an incredible mentor not only in in the business world the podcasting world but just a good friend to bounce ideas off he's an absolute hustler I met him this year literally and we've already struck up such an incredible partnership with Bloke in a Bar um they really do support the show so I'd love if anyone did want to support them, make sure you do. Links in the show notes. Grab a slab because whatever we do for them, they do for us. It is incredible. And and Denon's story in itself is great. Do you did you know of him before we we uh, no, got him on the show? Not at all. He's uh, he's in a different code. He uh, is. He's not NRL. Yes. He's obviously a big deal in NRL, but he's uh, he's a hustler. Yeah. But like, uh, it's it's like one of those things. Like, well, after you kind of hear about someone, you see them everywhere. Might have been on my social media, but he um he he's doing a million things at once, and it's pretty pretty inspiring it's unbelievable he's I, I look at it you know not that uh we're comparing each other but i looked at he's probably that two three years ahead of me he was onto this so early and was really passionate about podcasting and digital media when he left the nrl 
and um, he's done incredible things what, what, since. What are the different things he's doing? So he's got Bloke in a Bar, which is uh, the, the media network. So he does a lot of podcasting, vodcasting, live streaming. Um, you know, they do – he, he nearly does like three shows a week, I think, um, oh, on yeah. his platform. So Easily. it's just it's, – it's a mountain of work. It's, it's so admirable how he does it. You know, I, I know how hard it is to get one episode out, let alone three. Um, which we're obviously working at in the next second half of the year to get more shows out per week. And yeah. some big news about a new studio that we'll talk about shortly. There's a new studio? There is a new studio, something boy, which we'll talk about shortly. But um, yeah, Den and Kemp's story is incredible. This is a little snippet about how he started. He's probably transitioned from um, finishing up, working in the mines and just going, fuck it, I'm going to start this. 2015, that, mm. that, you know, that, no one knew what a podcast was then. Um, you've come up with this idea, you're starting it. Talk us through the early journey of it and then when did you start going, fuck, I could be onto something here? Um, well, it was – so even at the early phases, I was aware that the audience or community wasn't ready for podcasts yet. And so I focused more heavily on the snippets. Um, and if you wanted to listen to the podcast, it was there. But I didn't actually really push it. Again, this is confidence, you know, like who's going to want to listen to an hour long of me and someone else talking or whatever – um, so the first few years, even though the podcast was there, there, there was no real push behind it. There was, um, it was more like, you know, four to five minute snippets. Well, initially I started like two minutes and then it grew to like three to four minutes. Um, and then it was, I did that, I was working full time um, in a coal terminal and doing the, that on the side for maybe a year, year and a half. And then uh, an advertising, so place, a place called Moneyball approached me because like it was so new in the space, there was no one else doing it, like literally no one else. So you actually got the attention quite from a lot of people because a lot of businesses, because they're looking for cheaper ways to get mm. in on a community. Anyway, so they contacted me and um, and yeah, they, they offered me enough money to be able to do it full time. It was only like a three month contract. Like it wasn't like fucking a sure thing. It wasn't a lot of money either. Um, but I was like, and everyone was, I was like, I'm, that's it. I'm doing this full time. And I was in my third year of my apprenticeship. Every single person was like, and uh, that, uh, rightly so. Like they just been trying to be care about me. But they're like, don't finish your apprenticeship, finish your apprenticeship. And I was literally like, I would rather die than keep doing this job. Like yeah. I genuinely, like I can't keep doing this. It is, I'm so depressed. I'm so fucking sad every morning. Like I can't keep doing this. I don't care what, I'll go pour beers at a bar if I have to like, Anyway, so I quit my apprenticeship. Everyone said I was crazy. Um, but even then, like, it wasn't – it still wasn't a sure thing. Like, it wasn't just, like, quit my job and then it was sweet. Like, there was massive up and downs. Even as late as, like, two years ago, you know, like, we were sponsored by William Hill. They got it bought out by Bet Easy, and then it was real messy. Like, you know, the contract was there, and technically, you know, we should still be working together. But you get bought out by a new company, the old stuff gets moved on. Um and so, yeah, it was just like a, a slow burn. I guess it wasn't until probably two and a half, probably two years ago where I was like, you know, I want to take the next step to being an online sports network. Like I always had the plan to hopefully be an online sports network, but I just hadn't, I just needed to build that foundation, build that foundation. And then eventually I started um, doing like score updates, articles on people, funny stuff in rugby league, funny stuff in sport, MMA, um, boxing, everything. And um and yeah, that kind of garnered a different type of audience. They didn't necessarily all listen to podcasts, but they were aware that you know I existed or whatever. It, it's really only been the last twelve and uh, probably sixteen months where I've actually really pushed a podcast because I've felt um, that the community's ready for it. One thing I picked up on that I love 
that you said then about when you're working and you're nearly finishing your um, apprenticeship, mm. be like, fuck this, I can't do it anymore. I've mm. got to quit. And you quit. One thing I think that I've learned through this whole period now, when I finished footy, I didn't choose to quit. Okay. It wasn't my decision. Got sacked. Mm. But it was, I was going to anyway, if mm. that didn't happen. Okay. I wasn't going to retire. I was going to quit. Um, just because I was like, this isn't for me anymore. I'm so fucking unhappy. Mm. You know, even in a sport like that, I was like, I just can't do this. It's not me. Mm. But I think a, a big thing with some people as well sometimes, and again, we're not trying to give life lessons, but sometimes you have to put yourself under that pressure, mm. you know, of like not having something. Absolutely. And you would have been like, fuck, I'm all in now. Yeah, absolutely. Like I actually can't not fuck up. Like, yep. And I, it was the same thing for me when I finished. I was... I went into doing radio and I was learning that and I was like, this is shit. Like, I really hated it. Like, mm. I was really, really done. But I was yep. like, I can't quit yet because I need to do this. And I was like, you know what? I'm living at home with my uh, missus' parents. Mm. My bills are at a minimum. I've cut down everything. You know, I sold my, you know, my car. I got rid of my car, got rid of everything. So I had no loans. Mm. So I was like, no matter what, I knew what I had to get by a month. Mm. And I was like, I'm going to go fucking just do this yep. because I need to. So... There is ways, you know, I'm not saying if you've got three kids, you can do it, but yeah. it is one of those things. You put yourself under the pressure to get to where you are and that's mm. why you've probably done what you've done. Yeah, I, and I also think that sporting confidence that you get from playing a sport your whole life of like just having a crack, yeah. just, just fucking take that step. Um, I think that also you've got, to, you've got to be honest with yourself of, you know, if you're young and you don't have kids you should be trying anything you can, you know, like try anything you can, just, ha just have a crack, just, just because you've got the ability to do it. That's where I, I feel, not sorry, because obviously they got kids, it's a beautiful life mm -hmm. or whatever, but it, decisions become much harder when you have a, a wife and children or whatever, or a husband and children to make these calls. So like if you are thinking about doing X or Y, um, do exactly what you did, sit down and be like, okay, get all rid of your, all your loans if you can, and just, just have a crack. Like just, you'd be surprised at, how much opportunity is out there if you just put yourself in a position to do it listening to Kempi just makes me want to run through a brick wall yeah very inspiring love him absolute star and uh, plenty more things to come with, with Kempi that's for sure Mark Howard on the show we said earlier some of the feedback from him um, was, was immense it was incredible especially for a lot of probably people that are aspiring to be in that sports broadcasting sports media space what's some of the feedback you got well just I, I think like just how humble he was um how driven he was i don't think a lot of people knew his story which was even personally i didn't know this like how hard it was for him to get to where he is now like i think i said on the show which was was quite wrong was, was a 30 or 40 year overnight success which was probably stretching the time a little bit he's not that old um he didn't like that but, you know, he started, as he said, at 21 years of age, hustling, throwing cables on his back and moving around at the Grand Prix. He's been a cameraman. He's been a producer. He's been a director. He's been off screen. He's been behind the scenes at radio. And now he's got to where he is now. Mm. Um, and that was probably even just like a little wake up ball for me, even though, you know, I've done that too to, at, at an extent. I have worked behind the scenes and it did make me a lot better, I hope, at what I'm doing now. But I think it was just a good message to be like, Fuck, take your time. What was the analogy he had? Well, he spoke about people that he knew that were like incredibly talented people and they got given a chance too early and they probably hadn't done the background work or put the runs on the board yet to fully take the chance and, and probably didn't take it um, when they needed to and then it probably didn't work out for them as much as it should because they 
probably got rushed into things too early. Yeah. Um, so the example is like someone like becoming a presenter right after they finish their sporting yeah. career. Yeah. And then looking at his career and as we said earlier, like doing all of the things that he that he had to do. He'd worked so many jobs and he said to this day he still jumps on the on the camera if they need to yeah. um, and can still do all those things. So it's definitely something that I picked up from that. And I think that anyone aspiring to, not even in media, like any job, you don't want to be at the top straight away you want to learn all those little idiosyncrasies i love that word i think i used it too to to learn um the the specific role i suppose that you're getting to and just be a little bit more broadened but i suppose that just comes with maturity let's listen to it loved howie i think a lot of people would think like fuck this has just been a this guy's just blown up it's an overnight success but i think and i definitely know this it's a it's a 30 to 40 year overnight success rather than um something that's just happened. There's been a lot of work that's gone into it. And I think that that's probably the biggest part that we can talk about today, how your journey to getting to where you are now, it's been a long road and a lot of hard work's gone into it to finally get the rewards you're getting today. Yeah, I think you're right, mate. Um, Maybe not 40 year journey. I'm not quite that old, but uh, (laughs) it's like the rock and roll stars, you know, they had the, when did you become an overnight sensation? There's no such thing in media as an overnight sensation. I think that the generation, probably your generation, mate, when I see the, the people working in media, they want to be hosting the show and commentating and being the main guy or girl within a year, and it's just not realistic. I think the great benefit you have with a long grounding is you – I've played every role in the television and radio production from pulling cables to directing to producing to reporting to hosting to commentating. So I'm in a fortunate position now after a lot of years where I know what the director wants because I've done his job or what the producer wants because I've done her job or what the camera guy want because I've done their job. There was the other day at the footy was a prime example. Your man Mark Blitzars was doing a fitness test and the camera guys were on a break and the director was saying we need someone to shoot this and I jumped up on the camera. It was a little bit out of focus to be completely honest still but they rolled it into the broadcast because I've sat there and I've used a camera before so to have the knowledge of what everyone's trying to do certainly helps you in your role I reckon mate but yeah there's no I don't think there's such a thing in the in the media as overnight sensation. How did it start then, Harry? Like, what was your like? What was the path? How did you get into it? Did you study media growing up? Was it something you were passionate about? Did you just start, you know, working behind the scenes and slowly, gradually get your way and find your niche? Yeah, that, that's a two-hour answer. But to cut a long story short, no, I had no thought that I wanted to get into the media when I was growing up. I did a business degree in sports management, which was accounting and economics and things like this deal, which at Deakin University, which I didn't enjoy. I got six months in and I thought, wow, this is not what I was expecting. I'm having to do economics and accounting, business law. I didn't enjoy it, but I finished it after three years. And to cut a long story short, I spent a lot of time, a couple of years backpacking and uh, a mate was getting married that I'd backpack with and the Grand Prix was in Melbourne. I got a short-term contract in event management at the Grand Prix and he was getting married in Argentina two weeks later. And I was skint. I didn't have any money. I'd been traveling and I pestered the guys that ran the TV broadcast side of things in the world of Formula One and they eventually said, if you can get yourself to Sao Paulo, which was the capital of Brazil, which was not the capital to where the race was, the capital is Brasilia. If you can get yourself there, it's a city of 30 million people deal, but I'd been there. We can give you some work for a week and a half and the next Grand Prix is in Argentina. And in between those two Grand Prix was my mate Timmy Harris's wedding. So 
I flew to Buenos Aires and I worked with all these English truck drivers and we were pulling the camera cables. So to get a broadcast, an outside broadcast, all the cameras are connected by cables and those cables go back into the broadcast hub. So that was my first experience at sports media. I was a rigger, as they call it, pulling the camera cables. I went to Timmy's wedding, which was an absolute cracker. And then I was going up surfing up Columbia Way and they owed me some money. So I rang back reverse charges <laughs> to the UK. I said, oh, some of that money hasn't gone into my account. I didn't have enough money to get home at this stage deal. And they said, well, put the money through. We're glad you rang. The boys said you worked hard. If you can be in Monaco in five days time, there's a full-time job for you as a rigger. So I flew home, broke mum and dad's heart again and said, I'm going to Monaco and started pulling camera cables on the Formula One circuit. And that's how it all began, which is a long way from doing a podcast. So it, it's, um, it was fantastic, mate. I was working on the Formula One World Tour, traveling the world, pulling camera cables. As a 23-year-old, it was cool. Love rap from the how man, the guru himself. Um, but it wasn't all serious chats, Sam. We've, we have had some fun along the way, that's for sure. You can be silly. We can be silly. We can be silly. It is, it is fun to, to laugh sometimes. Um, and, and no more than when we had the ball magnet boys in. And doesn't it put a smile on your face just when I say Matt Rao? Like it just warms your heart. I saw he might be playing this week. It's bloody exciting. Like aside from that, you don't want to be the person who goes and says like, oh, Matt Real's such a nice guy. I know. Because you end up sounding like a bit of a wanker, but he is such a nice guy and you do want to tell people. It reminds me of the time we did the Bull Magnus podcast and I initiated that we go around the circle, we tell each other what we love about each other. It's just so lovely. It was was wholesome. Here it is. Check it out. You guys, obviously good players, but we're better friends. So what I want to do is go around the circle to our left and tell the person what we love about them as a player and as a person. Okay? So I'm going to go first. Lockie, (laughs) I love you as a person. And I love your hairline. I think it's very good and strong. I love your calves. They're nice and big. I thought we were going more personality, but go on. Oh, I'm getting to that. Oh, sorry. And I think you're a very generous person. And that's it. <laughs> Nothing about footy. Oh, footy. Uh, footy <laughs> I'm in uh, that bad at form. No, right? no, footy. Um, I love the way, even when they said you got tagged last week, if I hadn't had a touch in the first quarter, write me off for the game. I'm going up, I'm going up for a hammy. So to keep just going through, love that from you. Appreciate it. Uh, Maddie. Uh, I don't know if you have any for me. Really. <laughs> yeah, we played you twice in the, in the preseason. Um, attack on the footy, second and none. Um, bit of a plug for ball magnets. On the insights, he does a, a tackle break one, so that'll be coming soon. So once you see that, it's incredible. Um, if you had a watched our preseason games, his, his tackle breaking is phenomenal. Mm. So I love that about him. Uh, as a bloke, just the nicest person you've ever oh, met. He's too nice. He's, he's, yeah, he's too nice. I don't nice. know about that. But <laughs> once he gets on the footy field, it changes a bit, which is good. Yeah, he's got a bit of mongrel good? in him. Yeah, good. yeah it's nice. Yeah. Got good. a bit of mongrel there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How'd I go? Is that right? No, it's beautiful. Yeah. Heartwarming. So, well said. Yeah, yeah Kripa. Really um, yeah, well, first of all, I love your big shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Wholesome, wholesome, wholesome experience with Matt Rao. Um, another big one. This blew up. Fair to say this one absolutely blew up. It made headlines. It was fantastic. Matty DeBoer last week. Fuck, man. Jeez, didn't he just rip the lid off it and send it for everyone? Not only on a wisdom front, but just humour too. I think that story of him catching the criminal that stole his credit card and bike goes down as one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. How many people have you told that story to? 
I had told it to people before, but I'd left out a few details and have never told it that good. But hearing him tell it again, and that was nearly one of the most reshared bits of content that's gone viral on Dylan Friends. Like it had over, I think it had like 40,000 views on that clip on Instagram. Yeah. You know, 7 AFL retweeted it. It got news articles written about it. Yeah. Um, it was one of the funniest things I've ever, like, ever heard that story. But yeah, if you haven't heard it, check it out. This is Matt DeBoer. It sums him up as a person. Absolutely love this. Um, mate, I've got one more story that I think will really sums you up as a person. Um, it's probably not what you think it's going to be, but there was one time when we were up in Sydney and something happened to you on the weekend in your personal time. And it really just made me realise, do not fuck with Matt DeBoer on, off the field, <laughs> in business, in life, in footy, in just anything at all. And it was a, a young man who, did he steal your wallet or did he find your wallet? Uh, this story. No, he uh, stole your bike. Bike and wallet. Bike and wallet. Please tell me this story because it's honestly one of my all-time favourites. Oh, this is Josh Kelly's favourite story, so I assumed it would come <laughs> up at some point. But yeah, essentially I was moving, it was the first few months of Sydney, um, I was moving into my new rental, Tendai Mazunga was helping me, we're putting our you know furniture in, carrying it from the car in, inside and um, maybe being a little bit sheltered, but I forgot to lock my car and uh, Tendai and I played a game of Madden or something and then my phone rings and all of a sudden it's the bank saying there's some suspicious activity on your card. Um, we're going to cancel it. I thought, oh yeah, do, do that. And I've just jumped online <laughs> and seen the transactions of, of what's been happening and someone's essentially got my card and tapping going up the street, um, buying certain things and it finished at this pub. And I was like, right, I jumped in my car and I just sped down there, um, got out, got into the pub and then uh, no one was there. I spoke to the owner and he was like, oh, we thought that was strange. When their card was declined, these guys just scattered. I was like, oh, mate, they've stolen my credit card. Um, and I don't know why, but I just said, can I look at the CCTV footage? I'm just like curious. And he's like, yeah, okay, sure. So we've gone down down the stairs into the <laughs> into the dungeon to see the CCTV footage. He's rewound it. And it's about four guys there um, having beers on me. Um, and then they take – yeah, so I got my phone out. Once again, don't know why, I just felt compelled to and started taking photos of it. I was like, all right, it's one of these four guys. Um, and then I just hopped back in my car. I was like, I'm just going to drive around, see if I can find, see him in the streets. I don't know what I would have done, but driving around, looking for him, couldn't find him. Um, so I called the cops, reported it, did all the right things. And then I realized that within my wallet, there was a, a travel card and I hadn't, um, I had about a hundred bucks left on it. So I didn't cancel that one because every time he'd use it, it'd notify me of where he was. So he started... <laughs> So he keeps, he keeps using this card. Uh, I was out at a date night with my with my fiance at a Bondi, and then he's used it somewhere, you know, in the west. So I was like, right, we're going. I've ruined date night. We're hopping in the car, we sped off to try and find this guy. Essentially, called the cops on the way, doing all the right things, and then um, he'd left by the time I got there. Once again, I don't know who, what exactly what it looks like. I've got some sketchy photos of this CCTV footage. Um, anyway, so I was, I was trying to chase him around Sydney for a, a couple of weeks there, and. Unfortunately, I, I tore my hamstring um, in the second week and, you know, I was pretty dis- disappointed about that. But um, I was due to go out for breakfast with the Mzungus on, on the Sunday. Um, and then, so I was just waiting out the, out the front, waiting for my fiancé and I see this guy walk past and I was like, that's, that's fucking him. And I've been studying this photo <laughs> like Liam Neeson from, from Liam Neeson from Taken and I was like, that is him. And I was sort of... And by that time, he's sort of down the street a little bit and I've realized I've torn my hammy. He's like, what am I going to do? So I've jumped in the car, sort of sped up to him, got out of the car and I was sort of hobbling along to him and I sort of didn't know what to say. I was like, hey, mate, 
And I was like, what do I say? What do I say? And he's turned around him and I said, have you got any ID? And then he's just looked at me and gone to run. So I was like, nah, I've just launched at him. I jumped at him. <laughs> I've tackled him to the, tackled him to the ground. I was supposed to be this good tackler, but um, yeah. I ripped his shirt off his body and his, and his hat fell off as well. And he got up and he went to scamper away. And I went to chase him and felt my hammy. I was like, oh, gee, I can't do that. Um, I can tell this story now. It's a few years ago. Um, so he got away, which is disappointing. But then picked up the, uh, the hat, dropped it off to the police. They ran forensics on it. He'd been arrested previously, so they had all his DNA. So they went and picked him up and 18 months jail. So don't steal from me, Dill. <laughs> I'll get you. <laughs> this bloke has just robbed you of a bike and a wallet and four beers, I think it was. And now he's doing 18 months. Yeah. No, I was do I not start, Do not fuck with Matt DeBoer. Exactly. So if podcasts were available in prison, they would be, wouldn't they? Yeah, I imagine so. What would you do if you heard that and that was you? Well, I wonder whether he knows who Matt DeBoer is. He does now. Because I have a feeling Matt was like the lawyer on that case as well. And like, just like actually just... <laughs> you reckon Matt DeBoer was handcuffing yeah. him and taking him to his cell? There was actually one person that was like 90%, like I, I try not to read the comments too much because sometimes there's always going to be someone that disagrees. But one of those comments, like everyone was like, that's a funny story ever. You know, love it. Great work. But then someone was like, yeah. Good on you, man. He's just trying to have a couple beers and you put him in jail. It's like, the bloke stole, he's broke into his car, stole his credit card and his bike. You really need to like make sure you tell those details in the story. Else, It sounds like um, someone's just found his wallet. Yeah. Been, been a bit of a- No, it wasn't idiot. finding. They broke yeah, into the broke car. In, intentionally like, stolen. Intentionally stolen. So another one, Sammy, was Alex Rance. Big ep. Um, bit of humor in that. I can't believe this actually happened, but- I called a good friend of mine, Andrew Collins, used to play the Blues and the Tigers. I said, mate, I've got Ramsey on. Anything you got for me? Told me the story about him telling Richard to run through the cones. Yeah. I didn't think this was true. We fact-checked it. You knew someone as well that was at Richmond. There was a bit of smoke in the air. We didn't know if it was actually true or not. We put it to him. Here was the response. Early days, there's a story. I don't know if there's any truth to this, but telling Richard to run through the cones at training on your first session. Yeah. Is there any truth to this? People don't know, Matthew Richardson at that stage would have probably been in the peak of his career or down, like finishing off his career. I've got a lot of like f stupid floggy things that I've done throughout my yeah. life, but this probably takes the cake, you know, like in your first year, the guy who's like the marquee player, like, and it's like, it's like Matthew Richardson, daylight, the next person, or maybe like Nathan Brown. The thing is, it wasn't even a conditioning session. It was just like <laughs> the warm up to a training <laughs> session, like cone to cone warm up. And like Richo's just sort of like pulled up, like maybe three meters before the cone, just sort of like trundled through. I'm like, oh, get through to the cone. Like first year and everyone's just like, whoa, this kid is coming hot. He's either going to crash and burn or something's going to happen with his career. Sammy, that was good fun. Sammy was footy friends. Tommy Sheridan, Tony Armstrong, Mickey Barlow, getting all in a room at once talking some footy. And we've had big plans for this. COVID's delayed it a little bit. The new studio's coming. We're getting a new studio in the next month and looking to do some more shows like this, hopefully more regularly um, as bonus episodes and, and a standalone thing. We'll even do some live streaming of games and, um, and whatnot too because it was, it was awesome fun uh, with the boys and we're definitely looking to do some more stuff like this. But one thing we did do, Sammy, which was your idea. I'll give you credit for this. I, I nearly said to you, Sammy, piss this idea off. I don't want to do it. It's not funny. I don't. I was so I close. Credit, mate. You know I don't care. You about want the credit. credit so badly. I don't care about credit. I was so close to saying, Sam, you're fired. I don't want this idea in the show. It did work. It was funny. 
This was AFL Articulate with Tommy, Tony, and Mickey B. Tommy, you're a flog. Boys, uh, we're having a bit of fun because we love fun. We love um, footy. Um, this game, AFL Articulate. Nice. Now, we love Articulate. It's we a family do. fun game. We play with our family, play with our friends. We love it. Love it. It's fun. So it's fun. Again. Yeah. It's basically, it's if you fun. don't know the game, myself and Mickey B are going to be together. I'm going to be explaining oh, the first one. one. Okay. And then Tommy and Tommy and Tones are together too. Okay, so we're going to have 20 seconds. And we've got to have fun in this 20. We're going to have fun. And you've got to get as many as you can. I'll time you out. You can get as many as you can in the 20 seconds. Yeah, so if I get the first yeah, one, it's good to go. Good. All right. Uh, what is going to be in the this year watching the games? Crowds. Yes. Uh, the really good looking bloke from Bulldogs. Six uh, back, Bailey six back. Smith. Yes. Uh, your bloke that sacked you. Stuart Chu. Yes. Uh, best <laughs> AFLW player of all time, number six, Dale Melbourne. Harris. Oh, it's Daisy Pierce. Yes. Uh, the, when I'm walking down the street. Well, fuck. Uh, Sam Newman. The, the singers, um, they murder people. And the killers, Jack, the killers. Yes. And oh. uh, Tony Armstrong's oh. favourite player. Dolly Flores. Yes. Oh. Jeez, that was pretty good. That was a long 30. That was a long 30. Yeah, that was a long 30, so... So five, so, so you gotta get like seven, we're on so six, composed so all the time, except for when the last round. No, no, but yeah, yeah. you're not then. Yeah, you uh, that. yeah. Stop oh, opening no. your eyes. I know. Slow deep breath. Sorry. <laughs> okay, so currently the score is seven to the idiots over here and six to us, but we've got a round to play. Mm-hmm. And Tom is guessing. Oh, okay. Have been known to choke. I'm gonna check this. No, 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 it no. has to be exactly what's fine. written on the sheet. So right now, can we play the? You're fine. So you're in front. We'll no. play this, the drop marks are really good. Play in front of 2015. Miss one for 15 now. Known as a tagger, play, played for Fremantle now in the US. Oh, Matt the ball. Yes. Um, this bloke is uh, hosting the um, the opening night of this documentary that's coming out. Sorry, yeah. Oh, yes, this is the win. Dylan Buckley. No. no um, skip, skip, um, um, skip Port Adelaide song that they that they play on the way Never out. Never walk on alone. No, 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 it's Liverpool, isn't it? No. Next one. Go back to the, no, the no, host. No. Um, to so Dylan Buckley hosting the Amazon yeah. Prime. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so it's a tie. You idiot, Amazon Prime making you their mark. Idiot. Oh. Oh. And it was in excess and never tear us apart. Yes. What did I say? You oh, said um, never walk alone or something. <laughs> I just want to. Hey, bump yeah, on seat. Like, it's still the first time he's choked Mickey Barlow. Yeah, people want another oh. round, Tone. Under the highball, Sirioli at his head. I don't want to give him another what, round. What oh. is it with you and choking? Oh, like you Jesus. did it at your family golf day. Oh no! At the Wacker. Is it the Wacker? When you the took wacker. that girl to the, the door, I'm playing waffle. I was playing Bruce Reed. When you took that. Speaking of articulate, it's been something I have struggled with this year. Um, maybe not this year, just my whole life. And it finally came uh, front of house, I suppose. Um, that doesn't even make sense. There you go. I've just done it again. It came full circle because when we're talking to Patty McCartan that week, I think I'd been using some words that just didn't fit in. They did yeah. not fit in any sentences. But after I have a couple of blokes in a bars, the tongue gets a little bit tired and things just happen. Okay. Things happen. Go with it. Say it confidently and hope people know what I mean. Do you remember any ones that you do? Cause I do, yeah. I've got one that is very, very prevalent. It's transpire. <laughs> I think I say transpire when I meant yeah. to say transcend or... Sometimes you do like uh, figures of speech. So you say like play it by fear or... Mm, mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, I got exposed. Finally came out. Here it is. By the way, I've been getting a lot of people <laughs> lately. I have a bad vocabulary, right? Yeah. I have this so a unique skill though of saying words that don't fit in 
but I say them so confidently that people think maybe they actually does fit in. That's an amazing skill, man. So I had someone the other day say, mate, you keep saying this. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. It, like you're saying it in no. the wrong aspect. But I was like, let's go with it. Yeah. Through that, it's, it's probably set up a lot of, you know, your mission today and a lot of the way that you've sort of think and, and, and work and your goals um, today uh, transpired. The Dylan Alcott episode ticked all boxes. Humorous. Inspiring. Inspiring and just all around absolute superstar of a bloke. It didn't disappoint, did it? No, it was really good. This story, I think he tells about him crowd surfing at a comp, literally sums him up. Nothing's going to hold this bloke back. He's the life of every party um, and just takes the absolute piss out of himself as well as everyone else. I love this bloke. Since this episode, by the way, since the start of the year, he has won another Australian Open. Yep. And just won a French. Yeah, Roland, Ga- Roland Garris. Roland Garris as well. So he's yep. now a seven-time Australian Open winner and a three-time Roland Garris. Is that? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Among others. And we might have to take a little bit of credit for that. I think just a bit. Just, just a little bit. Uh, but he was fantastic. This story sums him up. He's a superstar. We love him, and we look forward to partying with him at Ability Fest soon with the Untitled Boys and some bloke in a bars. But besides the sport, the festival scene was where you actually made quite a name for yourself. And this was crowd surfing um, at, at festivals with Wu Tang Clan. Yeah, well, I went to Coachella and I was with a few mates, and we're 50 meters from the front. And my mate puts one foot each side of my wheels and stands up on the back of my wheelchair, right? And he goes, oh, in return, I'll pick you up. Four boys picked me up and I crowd surfed in my chair and Jay-Z stopped the show and was like, Jay-Z. give it up to my dude in the wheelchair right there. And then from then on, I called it the best seat in the house. And I've only ever drip, been dropped once. It was at um, Groove in the Moo yeah. Festival. And I landed on a mate of mine, Dave Fallon. And uh, yeah, I got only got dropped once and I didn't end up any more disabled than I started. <laughs> he was worse for wear. Pretty much elbow dropped him in the, in, on top of his head. It was his fault though. He grabbed the wheel. If you grab the wheels, guess what? The wheels spin. Spin. Yeah, it makes so sense. But Google wheelchair crowd surf fail. Is it you? That exact moment. And Link it in looks the show like notes. I got shot by a sniper rifle. Fuck. It's actually fucking hilarious. That's hectic. Speaking of the beautiful Dylan Alcott, we, had a, we actually had his better half come into the studio, Chantal Otten, who is a psychosexologist. Correct. Unbelievable. Um, taught us a few things, that's for sure. I've always been so interested in this space. Love languages. Um, she knew it all. Communication. Communication, being positive about your sexual health and being confident in your body. Um, I think the idea of her coming on, I was like, this is going to be really cool. We're just going to talk. But then when we actually did the episode, I was like, this is like the most beneficial fucking show I've ever heard. Like so many people reached out after that and were like, mate, like that has helped me. Yeah. That has helped. Education. It's educated me. It's helped me. Um, I definitely learned a lot and it educated me in the space too. Yep. Um, one of those big, big parts was the love languages. Yep. Um, I know a lot of the boys needed this. I know a lot of the girls needed this. A lot of relationships in general needed this just to connect a little bit better. You said you had like a hug limit. I have a hug limit. Given, yeah. You? What's that again? Um, it was three, it was, I think it was three a week. Three a week? Yeah. That's not many. No, it's not. Um, Maybe she's taking that down. Yeah. And I'll be honest, hasn't improved since then either so i think it's definitely me that keeps fucking the situation that's for sure she tagged me in a meme that sums me up pretty well it says i love the idea of shutting up but like it's just not for me and Chaz is implying that's you that's me i mean i literally try like i'm like i'm just gonna not talk today and i can't it's really hard to to not do that so and why do you not want to talk well i know that if i don't talk maybe that'll make her like want to talk to me more oh but it doesn't like she goes she always says like if you just like 
don't talk to me. I want to come talk to you. And I, I try it for like 15 minutes. It doesn't happen. So I just go back to being annoying. Interesting. This is love languages from Chantel. Love languages. It's something that I'm super interested in. Mm. I've done the most basic of research on how this works because I suppose I talked to my partner Justine about this a lot. We are, you know, I'll, she's the love of my life. The most beautiful woman in the world. We are so, you know, I'm so happy we're beautiful. But I annoy the fuck out of her. Like, I am the most over-affectionate. Like, I just, every time I see her, I just want to be, like, hugging her, tell her how much I love her. Yeah. And she's had to put in boundaries. We've got rules now. Like, Aww. I'm only allowed to hug her three <laughs> times a day. Like, because, <laughs> like, it just gets too much. Um, and I know that I, like, I just want to hug her and just be with her because I'm an affectionate person. Mm. But it's actually, the more I do that, it's actually pushing her away more. Yeah. And for her, like, she's, you know the way she shows love is she you know she she does things she's just a real doer like she'll plan us to go out for nice lunches and you know buy beautiful things for the house and that's how she expresses her love yeah. so i'm always like in this battle of being like two people in a relationship it's off probably often that they've got different ways of, of showing their love yeah how important is this to understand what your love language is and how you receive love and what your partner's is as well so should I explain a little bit more about what love language is? I think is? we should. I've probably just jumped right into it, yeah. All right. So love languages is a questionnaire. It's a quiz that was made up by a psychologist. It's really actually spot on. Basically, it explains that the way that we show love to others is the way that we want to receive love. So you are saying to me, I want some hugs, I want some some cuddles, I want some kisses, I want some skin on skin. That is how you want Justine to show you love. So you're putting that onto her. But, you know, she's saying I, you know, she loves doing acts of service. So maybe she wants you to do more acts of service. Basically, we have to look at what our partner wants from us in order to feel loved. And we have to find a balance there. So it comes up with our top priorities. And if we look at the results, of the quiz um the love languages are acts of service physical affection receiving gifts words of affirmation and physical touch and i'm a big believer in doing love languages because i think that it actually sorts out a lot of relationship problems as well but the key is to actually come to an agreement together if you need more than three hugs in a week like in a day sorry to feel love then that is something that you need to negotiate with your partner especially if you're having a rough week like you might go babe i know i've hit my max today but i just need like 10 (laughs) i need 10 hugs today or i need to just lie down next to you for a little bit or we need to snuggle on the couch and i'm going to do some more acts of service for you as well to make sure that you're feeling loved and cared for and i think that um once you can find out what your partner's love language is it is about the communication around that you have your top love languages but i also believe in incorporating all the love languages Mm. just obviously putting um a preference on the top uh results for your partner with that as well when there's times where you always want what you can't have so then there's times where i'm on the couch i just want to be by myself and then Mm. she'll try and you know your partner tries to cuddle you and you're like please remove yourself from me. I just Mm. want my own time right now. Mm. But I found the best thing for me in my relationship and she's the most private person in the world so she's going to be absolutely hating this right now. But I know that when, you know, she's had a bad day or been upset, straight away I'll go home, clean the house, make the bed, Mm. cook dinner. And that's like the biggest way that I can show love to her. So I think it's just the importance, as you said, is finding what 
is the strongest one for your partner mm. and and knowing that what that can make them happy the most totally and you know what you described to me before as well is you're sometimes like i really need a hug and she'll distance herself so that's classic pursuer distance yeah. behavior so teach some- me trade a man keeping king <laughs> <laughs> well teach it yeah you're always wanting more for sure same boy there's not much more that i love than talking to esteemed knowledgeable experts in their field when they're talking about mindset and gets me up and about. Who's coming to mind from these guests? Emma Murray. Yeah. Star. David Butterfant. Star. Matt DeBoer. GG blew our tops off, didn't he? We yeah. love that. Yeah. Um, Alex Rance took us on a little bit of a wisdom train. Choot, choot. Yeah. And Cade Simpson was good too. He was. He really yeah. wisdomed. So these episodes, we know we love these the most. Um, they're huge. Plenty there. But first of all, the mother of, of Dylan Friends. I'd say, mm. Emma Murray. Yeah, definitely. She's just a star. We want to get her back on the show. She was incredible. Um, I loved her whole show. I loved her whole podcast. If you haven't listened to that, please do. Um, it was just like normalising, I suppose, mindfulness and meditation and high performance and a million different things. Pulling back the curtain on it. Yeah, just, mm. just rolling that curtain, pulling it down. Um, one of my favourite probably analogies she spoke about was A game, B game. That hit me right between the eyes. Big one. Here it is. You said about mindfulness and... Your B game. Mm. So is, is that just ref- your analogies here, but A game, B game. B game is when you're not in your prime, I'm assuming. So you were saying then like you can, because I fall into that trap too. It's like, I'm tired. Why me? You know, I don't have enough time. But when you practice mindfulness and you've got strategies in place, like you said, whether it's your breath or a trigger word or whatever that is, you're still going to have those B game moments. But if you've got those triggers, you just snap out of it quicker. What we're talking about. So if we look at Richmond Football Club, 2016, you know, the last game we lose by 100 points. You know, the the public are calling for the board to be sacked, the coach, the captain, rebuild the whole thing. So from 16 to 2017, they didn't do any of that. But what they did was using that A game, B game analogy, well, let's – how do we get more players in their A game quicker for longer? That's your gains, right? It's like – if you can get be in your A game quicker and longer than you were the moment before, then that's where you find these performance gains. You don't have to get fitter, stronger, um, you know, do more practice. Most of these athletes, they're doing all the work. They are, you know, as fit as each other, as strong as each other. They've got their skills in place. Now we have to, as you say, get into that state you know, quicker and longer. And that's where you uncover, you know, 13th to premiers in one year. Now that wasn't just my work. They have, you know, an incredible leadership consultant. We know about Dimmer and, um, you know, Trent's journey. And so the whole lot of that created an environment which enabled these boys to stay in their A game for longer. Another lord in this one was uh, David Butterfant, was a former high performance manager at Carlton, also worked at Collingwood, was on the forefront of breaking down the barriers, I suppose, and boundaries of high performance training, taking teams over to Arizona, um, high altitude training, which was something at that stage, which was just unbeknown to anyone else in the competition. But 
one thing he really spoke about that was massive was was resilience and how that can make people stronger and and how we can deal with it and it being on a continuum and and he's had some you know really big things happen in his life he lost his son and and spoke about dealing with that and and how resilience really played into a card and and spoke about how resilience isn't a skill that you just pick up all the time it's it's on a continuum it goes up it goes down and I think he explained it perfectly here it is a habit it's a continuum I think it's one of those things that we have to continually do it's not to point you get to that mountain you're resilient no there's times you're going to feel that fragility you're going to feel that vulnerable it's fine it's accepting that but what are the things you're going to go back to that enables you to keep that momentum and going forward that is the key it's that continuum resilience is you've got to keep working at it. it's like your health and what is it works for you so really all of a sudden and, and over time you've formed these habits they're ingrained it's just part of you and then you've got those formed then you might think oh, okay i might start to get me out of the comfort zone and start applying some other things as well. If it gives you a better version of yourself and it gives you the ability to connect to yourself, why wouldn't you do it? Mm. Because I really think that we can become disconnected through pain. And then when, we, when that happens, we, we don't have the ability to connect with others. Because really, that's what life's about. It's about relationships, really. So, but I think when you have a true, a true kind of connection with yourself, you have the ability to really connect to others. So it's kind of like it is a continual. You've got to keep working at it all the time. And it's like, does it get easier? Probably not. No. You know, it does. I, I, I have to say, like, you know, like I've been doing mindfulness now for you know, nearly 12 years, you know, and I, I don't miss a beat. You know, I kind of exercise every day. But does it get easier? Not really. Do I like doing it? Not all the time. To be honest, you know, and I eat well and stuff like that. But, but what it is, it's the outcome, how I feel after it. Mm. That it that's, that's the most important. And I think that's what resilience – and you're right, when you admit – I'm feeling a bit fragile today. That's okay. Then you've got to you know, have some compassion to yourself. You're kind of like, that's, that's okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move through this. He's a star, David Butterfant, runs his clinics called Resilience Builders. Make sure we check that out too if you want to learn more or, or listen to his episode. Um, Sammy, what about the, the wrap-up of Matt DeBoer? Yeah, a lot, of good, a lot of good feedback for Matt. A lot Matt DeBoer, absolute legend of a bloke. Um, so happy that we got him on. He has some like special things about him that you know separate him from the average athlete. Like, yeah. What are some of those things, do you think? I honestly think like it's grit. Yeah. Like, I think if you've listened to the podcast for a while, we had a guy on last year called Andrew Russell, and this sums it up perfectly. It said, can we play that quote? Yeah, We're going to play it, okay? Yeah, it wasn't in the last 20, but let's play that quote that he spoke about athletes and what separates good athletes from bad athletes, and then we'll play back into Matty DeBoer. Have a listen to this. Probably the biggest thing you see, but also the research says, is that the good athletes and the good operators in anything just turn up. They turn up when they don't want to. They turn up when they're tired. They turn up when they're stressed. They turn up when they're frustrated. They turn up and they say, they have the ability to say, you know what, I might not be at my best today, but I'm still going to have a crack. And then I know that tomorrow is going to be a better day. They're, they're extremely optimistic and they think, you know what? This is going to be good for me. I'm going to find a way. They all have the same mentality of I'm going to find a way. I'm having a bad day. That's okay. That's all part of the process. I'm coming back tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to be a better day. So that was Andrew Russell from Carlton Footy Club. He's a high performance manager there. Absolute star. He was, you know, responsible for Hawthorne's full Pete. He also worked at Port Adelaide when they won a flag and Essendon as well. Probably regarded in the four walls as one of the best at that position in the AFL. Um, probably in Australia at the moment as well. And he, as you heard, spoke about what separates a good athletes from, uh, you know, the superstars from just the ones that get by. Great. 
And that sums up Matt DeBoer. He is just so switched on. He's so consistent. He's driven. And I just love it. I, I think, you know, I, I pumped him up a bit in the episode, but probably could have even gone even more. Like he's changed a lot of things for me. Mm. Um, and I, I hope you've listened to that episode. If you haven't already, make sure you do. The amount of people that reached out and said they were actually writing notes when listening to him. One, like, yeah, one person said they listened and then they listened again with and wrote Wrote notes. notes. Um, and well, he said, "Only yeah, what Matt DeBoer would do, literally, literally." Um, so this was Matty DeBoer speaking about player A, player B. He really got me a doozy here. I didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah. Should have picked up. Check it out. I'm really fortunate to have you know mentors you know across my journey, and you know I'll t- touch on a couple of them and see if you can guess who they are. So you know, player A, you know, fought his way onto a, a list is um, you know regarded as one of the hardest working players that there is, you know, worked on all these areas of, you know, deficiency, um, was in leadership group, you know, in his third year, um, you know, continued to work on, on everything, you know, played finals 75% of the time, you know, was the best clubman award winner, um, you know, joined a new club on the rise, you know, was in the leadership group there in his second year, um, and then yeah, ultimately became one of the sort of most consistent performers and, and a loved teammate. So there's that guy. Another one of my mentors is is Player B, and um, you know Player B was you know rookie listed, undrafted, bit of a bit of a scrapper. Really fortunate to get a game at all through someone else's injury. Sort of hung around. Ultimately got delisted by a club. Um, you know joined another club. You know as a depth player, hung around for a bit longer, and you know never really achieved a, a hell of a lot. You know so there's two mentors there. Do you know who they are? Well, I was going to say. Alex Silvani sounds like the first one. No, nah, so they're actually both me. And I, guess- I was going to say the second one's. I was going to say the second one sounds like you, but I was like, I okay, that's very good. I really like that. Yeah, so like they're both me, and I guess the lesson there is, it's all about who you choose to be, and I choose to be player A, and then that really helps <sighs> serve me and fulfills my, you know, propels my next steps there. So, in elite habits, when you're forming it, you know, how do you see yourself? And I don't say that to be arrogant at all. Like hope your listeners don't interpret it that way. I really just challenge them to think about what's your internal narrative and is that propelling you towards where you want to go? Because elite habits, like I touched on before, like we're inherently lazy. You need to have um, the, the purpose and the, and the motivation to do so, but it becomes down to what's your identity, like I've touched on, and, and what's your self-narrative so that you know it serves you to fulfill your next step because that'll take you ultimately to where you want to go. Man, I've just had a, just a mind-blowing moment there. You've really just really opened something up for me. That was unbelievable the way you did that. He's a star made the ball. We love that from him. He's a unique guy. He is. I'm Man, I, I've said this a little bit, but I'm so excited to see what he does after football. Yeah, well, I think he's already doing it to an extent. He is, he yeah. is. But I think, you know, he's so committed to his footy at the moment, but it's just exciting to see what how do you takes e- his place. How do you explain Matt DeBoer to someone who doesn't know him? I honestly don't think you can. You've just got to listen to that episode. I, I think I've, I've done it a couple of times, and what I say is he's playing footy full-time, and then he's running, like, three businesses. He's a venture he's capitalist. Venture, venture yeah. capitalism. He's doing, you know, this, that, and everything. Yeah, he's a star. Absolute star. Another big lesson for me I think something that I needed to hear at this stage and I think we speak about this a lot but sometimes you can hear so many messages but until it's your time to take that message on board it doesn't correlate with you enough and when we spoke with Alex Rance I probably wasn't expecting getting this out but he brought up how important to him emotion versus logic was and rationalizing decisions that he's made and how decisions are made, you know, in that first 24, 48, 72 hours, it's emotional. It's on emotion. It's like you're making your decisions based on things that happen. And 
I really looked at that after and I was like, fuck, I do this all the time. I'm so like reactive when I'm emotional. I'll say something and make a decision. Then a day later when I've calmed down, think, why the fuck did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. It's a funny one because the, the decision he's generally talking about is quitting footy. Yes. And it's a decision everyone can't understand because they're emotional about it. No, but I don't think like, that's the thing. It's like, that lesson for him was about something, but for for me and for everyone else, it's about total different things. You can take that scale and use it in anything. Yeah. And yes, that was his logic, I suppose, around it or his case study. But for me, it was around like how I deal with people, not making like decisions on emotion, just like letting my brain just relax, think about what's actually going to happen and do it. Um, absolutely love this chat from Rancy. Hope you got something out of this one. We sort of spoke beforehand about like, um, coaches and sometimes like boards and um, football clubs are very quick to drop an axe rather than just to like persevere. And if you, if you make decisions on one thing or one thing that's not going right, it's just, it, it doesn't make sense. Mm. Like, so Ben Rutten, he was probably um, the most um, well-rounded coach that I ever had in that like the way he approached leadership and the way that he approached uh, football technique and the way that he approached work-life balance taught me so much um, and, and sort of stabilized me. And in, in some ways it was probably the worst thing for my football career because it made me like comfortable enough to want to retire. Yeah. But like our biggest enemy is emotion a lot of the time. So he would always say to me that, is this logic or is this emotion? Mm. Like, what do we have to back up this? Like, what's the data that says that this is a correct decision or is this an emotional decision? Um, and, and that can carry out in a football set, circumstance. So, you know, for example, on field, um, you know, I feel like I'm being beaten a lot. Like, um, you know, I just lost that contest. Uh, I can't lose the next one. If I lose the next one, then I'm, you know, probably going to get dropped. If I get dropped, then I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. If I don't pay my bills and my wife's going to leave me, if my wife leaves me, I'm going to die alone. So you've lost one contest and then you're dying alone. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, you. so that's from one wife, contest, honestly, yeah. then, but like, what's the logic? I've lost one contest. Well, I win heaps of contests in the rest of my career. It's just one, whatever, move on. And then, you, and then you're back in. Yeah. Like, it's sort of, Separating the emotion from the logic, I think, is the most um, powerful thing in decision making. Um, and but but it's it is a fine line because the world is so emotional. Emotion versus logic, there it is. See if you can relate that to your life. Fuck me, it's prevalent in mine. That's for sure. Need to just settle down a little bit uh, and make some logical decisions. Um, hey, Dylan Alcott, we spoke about him earlier, but this is mindset. I think this is something that a lot of people could relate to. He told the story about how when he was younger and he was in a wheelchair, he found it really hard to fit in. He didn't know, you know, what his probably purpose was in life and he'd just sort of sit at home and do things here, there and everywhere and, and just felt like shit. Yeah, it was like at a point where his friends were starting to hit an age where they were separating from him a bit, yep. which I think is pretty common with uh, for people with, you know, disabilities like Dylan. And then, yeah, he, he told the story. Didn't he? he did. And he told the story of him being in a wheelchair and his mindset that has just gone through since then, just being like, fuck this. I'm not letting anything hold me back. I'm making the most of every opportunity. This story is honestly, this one actually hit me, like touched me a lot. Not only because it's, it's double-sided on this. It's one, the mindset of being like, fuck, don't let anything hold you back. Yep. But two, it's double-edged sworded that let's be more considerate of people with disabilities yeah. let's be more considerate of people actually thinking about other people having empathy and how they might be involved check this one out with Dylan Alcott you've won Oz Opens you've won Wimbledon you've won all these amazing things you've written books everything but the one thing I feel would be the most special is having impact on people I mean one so I run a, um, 
a music festival called Ability Festival. Mm. It's a music festival like any other festival, like Splendor, like Beyond the Valley. We just have some added accessibility features so people with a disability can come with their able-bodied mates. We have elevated platforms, pathways. We have Auslan sign language interpreters signing every lyric on stage. Have you ever seen sign language to rap music? I haven't. It's like someone having an epileptic feature. <laughs> it is impressive. Um, there's like sensory quiet areas for people with sensory disabilities like autism. We've got everything, right? Yep. And um, all the proceeds go to my foundation to help the Ellen Alcott Foundation to help young kids with disabilities achieve their dreams. Anyway, we're there and um, I see this young kid, he's a guy comes to me, his name's Mark, he's in a in an electric wheelchair and um, he comes up and he's pretty much in tears and he comes up and he says, and his sister and says, mate, I just want to say thank you. Um, this is the best day of my life. Mm. Now he's 22 years old. He'd never been to the footy, the cricket, a shopping centre, a festival, anywhere with his mates in an environment that was fully inclusive and fully accessible. That was the first time, right? And I didn't do it for that reason. I just did it because I wanted to get loose and put on a good show and have a good time. Um, And then, you know, uh, a few months later, Mark passed away. And uh, he, he actually also told that story to a mate of mine who was his doctor before he passed away. He told somebody that he didn't know about his best day. Didn't know life. you knew them. And that was my mate from school. Yeah, I, mean, I got goosebumps. I got goosebumps too. Yeah, yeah, fuck. And I don't do it for that reason, man. But my purpose in life is not to win grand slams and gold medals. My purpose in life is to change perceptions so people, all people, but especially people with disabilities, can get out there and live the lives that they deserve to live. Everybody deserves to go to a festival and have a beer, deserves to go on a date, deserves to have a job, deserves to play sport, right? Everyone does. So it's about finding ways to do that. Hey, speaking of uh, mindset, this is a different sort of mindset. This is like unbelievable sort of mindset. We had, we had a medium on the show, David the Medium, who is one of the most well-regarded, biggest dog mediums in Australia, I'm going to say. Yeah, interesting. Big dog. He was, he was unbelievable. And yep. this episode as well caused a little bit of a stir a stir in the community and what, what, what were people saying well yeah uh, they you know 50% of people were really happy with it they were over minded just going like yeah love to listen to it that was cool yeah. not taking it you know, too seriously I think like if you want to listen to it you can if not listen with a grain of salt if you don't believe in it for yeah. me I was so keen just to hear what it said I love this sort of thing I don't live my life by it but I respect it and I'm you know I'm respectful of what his beliefs are but this show and something that we spoke about earlier we always want to be respectful to people we want to just learn new things hear different sides of the argument how how boring is it if you're just talking to the same people all the time they have the same beliefs oh. as you Snooze. Snooze fest. So we had David the Medium and he was unbelievable. But yeah, a lot of people weren't too happy with it. And that's fine. And we love that people are so passionate about it. But just know it's healthy to listen to things you don't agree with sometimes. Exactly. This isn't propaganda. It's not propaganda. Um, but he was awesome. Um, and he spoke about how he became a medium and, and what it is like being isn't a medium. Interesting. But we did, like, again, in the episode, if you heard it, he did a reading for us at the end. He said some shit that I don't know how he said that and we couldn't put it in because of some things that like with some family reasons of people associated with what he said but it was fucking mind-blowing yeah it was it was really scary it was mainly like personal to you so like yeah you got the big hit from it yeah um pretty crazy yeah this was a little snippet from day of the medium I never really had any spiritual understanding growing up. I wasn't someone who at five years old saw spirits at the end of their bed or would, you know, notice things walking past the window or hear voices or anything like that. 
And uh, for those that don't know, my background is essentially corporate. So I worked in legal for most of my 20s. I was studying counterterrorism. Like I had a bit of a side gig doing defense contracting, you know, real, real kind of black and white corporate. Complete, yeah, did a real complete 180 with my career. And I was 24 years old. So a good sort of 10 years ago now when I got recommended to go see a psychic medium Mm -hmm. uh, by a lady that I just started working with only about two weeks earlier. And she's like, well, have you ever been to one? And I was like, well, not really, because I don't really believe in it. And, you know, I guess we're fortunate enough that over the, maybe the last sort of few years in particular, it has become a lot more sort of mainstream. But back then, like it was kind of something that was, you know, inverted commas considered quite weird or yep. a bit sort of fruit loopy. Taboo. Taboo is a great yeah. word. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was like, at that stage, my grandfather had crossed over. So I was like, well, you know, I'll go to her. And, you know, I was such an opinionated, obnoxious little bastard back then anyway. Because I was like, well, you know, I'll test her. Like, it's not yeah. about what I could get from it. It's about to see how good she is. And I sat down with this lady and I swear to God, she blew my mind away. Like, it's kind of the same experience that you probably had as well. Like, when it's your first time, you don't necessarily know what to expect. But I think if you're curious and open to it, and that's what I tell everyone. Like, you may not have had a reading before. You don't have to believe in what I do. Just listen to what I say. And if I'm bringing up things about your family or about your life or about what you're thinking or about what you're planning, then you've got to sort of analyze that. Like, how does he know? Where does it come from? Is he actually talking to my loved ones? Is he talking to my grandparents? And I think it really just starts evolving from there. So, you know, the biggest thing that I want every single person listening to know is sort of like, we are all souls having a human experience. You know, anyone that goes to a medium isn't a human having a spiritual experience. Like we all came from somewhere before we were on this planet and we're all going somewhere after this. And there's nothing necessarily special about me that allows me to connect with them. Every single person can connect with spirit. Wow. Uh, It just really depends about how open you are to it or what you're willing to sort of see and feel and hear. Hey, we've had some incredible athletes on, um, been blessed in the presence of absolute stars and and I'll never take for granted some of the insight they give us into, I suppose their vulnerabilities and, and some of the things that, they've been through on the biggest stage um a good friend of the show paddy cripps came on and spoke about probably tom in his career where not even his teammates really know what was going on he was under the pump um probably finding himself in a similar situation to what the club is in now i suppose with like you know coaching and media scramming on and he spoke about he probably wasn't in the form he wanted to be in Mm. and he was just cooked mentally cooked he was so tired he was thinking about nearly just having a week off he was that cooked but he said to himself, nah, fuck this. I'm the captain. I'm going to stand up. And he put together one hell of a performance. Listen to that story here. Before you mentioned 2018, 2009, that time when you might not have been enjoying footy as much as you could have. There was a game at the end of the year. And around this time, you were just cooked, mentally exhausted. And from good authority, that was a space you were in. The next day, you went out and had 39 kick four in probably one of your best games you ever played. From all reports, that was probably a big turning point to you to realize how important all this stuff was. Yeah, no, it's spot on. I um, Yeah, I, I've told the story to a few people and they laugh. They're like, oh, you couldn't have been feeling bad. But honestly, I was um, I was so close to pulling out that week. I was just so, yeah, I just was in a good space mentally. It's probably the six weeks lead up of just, I don't know, it's like I think in that space we'd won three games out of 44. Um, you, you're trying to give so much and... Um, yeah, just you, you want to win basically, and um, and that was the week that um, Bolts got got fired, and um, I had a really good relationship with Bolts. Um, 
and yeah, it was, it was a tough week, but I was just mentally cooked. And I remember like I had no energy. I'd come home, I was lethargic. Um, a part of mine was just like, you're just not yourself at the moment, but I couldn't see it. Like when you're in a bit of a hole like that, you just don't see, you're just knackered. And um, I remember going to Andrew Russell, Jack, and um, on Thursday I said, mate, I don't think I can play. And he goes, just give it another few days, you see how it goes. And like had my head in the hands, I couldn't even look him in the eye. I was just like nearly a broken human. Mm. And um, I was I was really close to pulling out. And, like I'm not putting any mail on this story at all. Um, but yeah, the next day I, I sort of woke up and I'm like, all right, um, I'm a leader of this footy club. It's been a big change. Um, how I show up is going to be a reflection of the group. Uh, and I remember even driving to the game with Eddie had, and, and I was cooked in the car. But I was like, all right, I made a thing to myself. All right, when I go to the change rooms, I'm going to be up and about, going to have energy, and I'm just going to have fun playing today. And um, yeah, mate, it was, it was a weird one. Like I was so mentally cooked and. Um, yeah, I just had one of those games where I don't know, I don't know how to explain it. You just you get into that that state where you just just happens. Um, and it was, it was one of the it was just one of my happiest moments of footy. Not because I played well. It was more just I don't know. We just the the group like was just so pumped because we hadn't won much. Like it was just a special day. I remember seeing the fans just smiling um, in the rooms. Like everyone was smiling. And then that night we actually went back. Um, to the club and um, we sat around a fire and had a few beers and everyone just had a chat and it was just a real moment that I'll never forget where it's just everyone bonds and, and then even after that mate I, like I, that next week I just I was knackered like I uh, we had the buy the week no we played the Bulldogs and we had the buy the week after and I asked for a bit extra time just so I was cool went back to the farm well, I was sleeping 12 hours a night back on the farm I just absolutely knackered I actually broke my toe um, in that game um, so I played the Bulldogs a week after, got stepped on again, then I missed three weeks with, with a broken toe. So um, at the time, I didn't know how much I was struggling, but people around me saw it. With the mental health side, you never know what people are going through. And a lot of people would experience that in the last sort of nine months, but just ring a mate and just ask. Yeah, a lot happened that time, but it sort of gave me a real appreciation for uh, the power of the mind. And no matter what you're going through, um, that self-talk and you can get yourself in a state of mind of like you can you can perform. He's a tough man, Crip. I never, never count that man out. And um, I think he's an absolute superstar of a bloke. But we have a lot of players on. One thing we don't really get to hear too much is on the other side of the arena, I suppose, in a way, and it's the umpiring, the best seat in the house. We had Sean Ryan, one of the most decorated umpires of the last century. He's made like 16 comebacks. He's done eight grand finals, I think, on the big stage. And, and he talked us through some pretty sick insight into just like what it's like being an umpire, what it's like talking to the players on the ground. He told this incredible story of a, a grand final with Jimmy Bartel and just being up close to people like Buddy Franklin and all these guys on field. Uh, and how he zeroes in too, how he deals with feedback, all these type of things that like, you, you just don't think about. And it's easy for us to judge on field, but umpires are seriously some of those mentally strong um, people there is check this chat out with with Sean Ryan so you've done 2008 2009 the grand final rematch in 10 11 you retired and then came back did 17 18 19 those games in those grand finals what are your favorites I suppose going back now which games do you look back and go geez that was a big game um, and in those games are there any memories that sort of the game just slowed down and you remember something happening or watching something going shit I'm actually here that just happened Oh, I'm lucky. Some of those games have been some classics. So I, I think um, 09 was the toughest game I think I've ever umpired. I think at the time it was like the most tackles ever. Is that St Kilda Geelong? Yeah. Yeah, and that was with the toe poke. Yep. Yep. And so I had that that incident, and you knew at the time, oh, this is this is pretty cool. Like it was just a, a pretty cool thing. Um, and then like that, and 
I think people forget because at the end it was 10 points or something. But when the siren went, I think it was four points and then um, someone kicked a goal, you know, as everyone was walking off, yeah. walking away. Basically. Was it Max Rook? Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was tough. And, you know, that had the point, um, you know, touch the post, you know, you throw that into the equation, where does it sit, all that sort of stuff. Like that was a really, really just a tough game. And then the draw was just like – yeah, that was an experience I don't think I, – I, I know I'll never forget that because, um, you know, I had – I just happened to be in the middle of the ground and had that last sort of minute and you knew this has got to go any time now. I was well aware that it was a draw. Um, and when that siren went, the the stillness of every everyone just in shock and you're just sitting there and you're thinking – and. There was a, one of the first, it was the only time that you sort of had this, I explained it as this sense of like, I don't know, if it's over the top, but like a oneness with the players. Like we all just could not believe that. And I'm looking, I was standing there, just players all around me just exhausted. Um, and then like Nick Del Santo had the ball and I went over and got the ball and then I helped him up and then there was a photo of me helping him up and then that was like everywhere the next day and that was a pretty cool photo. Um, but then, you know, like afterwards, like, what does this mean? You know, did you know, like, what what was going to happen? Yeah, like we knew, and there was just this sort of like, I can't believe we have to go through all this again because grand final week for me anyway is I think everyone experiences it differently, but you get told you're doing the grand final. I'm not really doing cartwheels. I'm just like, okay, let's get this right. Yeah. It's a big game. You can't stuff this up. Let's get this right. So it's just about preparation, getting it right and that sort of stuff. And then you're always telling yourself, for me, my body was always gone by the end of the year. I'm just getting through. My back's stiff, all those types of things. I'm like, just four more quarters. That's all it is, four more quarters. You get to three-quarter time, you're like, one more quarter, <laughs> one more quarter. And then the goes, you're like, that all meant nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, – and I think everyone had that same experience. Like, Jesus, we've got to, you know, we've got to do this all again. Um, so yeah, that was pretty cool. And then the other one was obviously um, the West Coast Collingwood. Dom uh, Sheed. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was that was pretty cool. Fair to say, I had a bit of a crush on Caleb Daniel. Who doesn't? It was a bit weird. I think. I, I think he was a little bit creeped out by me because I just. No, I reckon he was flattered. Was he okay? I reckon he was okay, flattered. I reckon good. if it was someone else, maybe a bit weird. But yeah, I think. I hope he I liked. I think it. he was threatened. We're friends now. Oh yeah. Yeah, we talk a bit. Okay. Yeah, we're good friends and stuff. So like we. Talk a fair bit. And it's pretty cool. So it is cool. shout out to my boy Dano if he's listening. Um, he's a star man. Just absolutely loved him. It feels like the 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 setbacks for him in getting drafted, you know, late pick, the height thing. It just didn't even bother him at all. Like it just was just like never going to not happen, which is unbelievable. And I suppose he talk about now backing himself in. You know, all Australian, obviously one of the best ball users in the league. Um, but he told us a pretty funny story about his first grand final, which he won in his first year with the doggies, 2016. Pretty momentum First or year. second, I think, yeah. First or second year, maybe second um, year. Maybe second. Second yeah. year, yeah. Um, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Well. <laughs> um, so that was sick. Uh, but one thing I'm very familiar with is rocking up to the knee full and not getting a touch in the first quarter. I'm telling you now, when there's six people watching, it still feels pretty bad. I can't imagine what he was feeling on his first grand final on the MCG, biggest game of the year, going into quarter time with donuts. Here it is. You're in your second year playing in an AFL grand final. What's that like? Yeah, amazing. I, yeah, it was very obviously fortunate to, to be able to play in it. Um, and 
yeah play play a big role and and be able to you know go there and I suppose I had actually donuts in the first quarter, so I had zero. Yeah. Did you really? Yeah. So fun fact there, if that, that ever comes into the decoy trivia. running. Uh, nah, that was <laughs> not like my plan. Running around like a headless <laughs> chook, I think. So in um, serious though, because like sorry to cut you off there, but like that was something that really affected me when I was playing. Like if I didn't have a touch in the first quarter, I'd nearly be like, "Fuck this." Yeah. Day's done. I was, and I know yeah. that's a shit way to think, but it, especially on a grand final day, what was going through your head? Oh mate, there was plenty. Yeah. Um, I was like, I was unfortunate. I started on the bench. Um, obviously in the granny, there's a lot of heat, a lot of tackles. So I didn't get on until probably a 10 minute mark and there was a lot more rotations in those days. So, um, I came back off on, I think the 20 minute mark and, you, without, and stayed off. Yeah. Without yeah. having a touch. I had one knock on actually. So I paid that to almost. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> um, didn't count for the stats. So I was the one with zero at, at quarter time and, um, yeah. So, but yeah, to the coach's credit and stuff like that, um, you know, they actually said to me, like, you keep working your ass off, things will turn. Yeah. And it's not, you know, it's not all about touches and, and stuff like that. I know growing up as a kid, you're like, I want to have 30 in this granny and kick five, you know. Um, but it is, like, there's a lot of selflessness that goes into playing a team sport and, and that's what we all love about it. So, um, yeah, special day and, you know, playing Sydney, Buddy Franklin, um, the likes of, yeah, Josh Kennedy, Luke Parker and stuff mm. like that um, was, yeah, super special. And just to share that moment, you know, we had Bob who, who missed the granny because he did his knee, but to share that moment with Matty Boyd and Dale Morris who have, you know, Matty Boyd has played 300 or close to and Moz 250. And, um, yeah, to be able to share that with them was was extremely special. And, and guys that weren't a part of the actual mm. team like, like Gia, yeah. Um, Guys that had been stalwarts of the club for for so long, um, without having any success for sixty two years between flags, so um, there was plenty of them. Speaking of grand finals, a big stage. This man knows what he's doing around the big stage. Um, he only played in one premiership, which was fascinating because obviously he had the injury and then they won it the year after. But I still feel like he's won three. Yeah, I feel like he's like his his legacy, like he's part of that. Yeah, definitely part of those other premierships. Yes, and that was Alex Rance we're alluding to, obviously. Um, he told some fascinating stories, one actually being the fact that he was pushing to get back ready to go for the 2020 grand final, which headline grab was up. exclusive headline grab. We'll Thank get you. to that later. Yeah. Number one in the charts, number one in the hearts of all the community, which we love. People's podcast. Yes, yes, yes. Local show, as how he would say. And Rance told us about, I suppose, when Richmond got there and how it was a little bit different in his terms. Like, I was like, mate, surely you're jealous. You know, we've spoken to a lot of people about grand finals throughout the time. Ted Richards, uh, Zach Dawson, Chris Judd, all these people, they've got that nervous energy. Yeah. Rance is just like, nah, we'll fucking system. That's like, we just, I got there and I knew what I had to do. It was sick. No, I've actually heard the other Richmond players, like the defenders, talk about the same yeah. thing. Is that, like is that when you're hanging out? Is that when you're hanging out with them? <laughs> When are you hanging out with him? No, I was in interview. Oh, I was in interview. Okay, fantastic. Well, wasn't around. Yeah, okay. Okay, sweet. Yeah. Stop annoying the Richmond players, please. Here it is. Premiership 2017. Impressive. Very cool. What's your memories going into that first grand final? It was a really, it was just kind of like a wave. Like I, I think because there was such a stark contrast between 2016 where we didn't make finals to us just being like top four, win, 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 grand final. This is kind of like, oh that was easy, like, which it wasn't like, you know, but it's just kind of like when you get on a roll and like, I think Dimmer's like so right whenever like all the negative journos want to say, oh, Richmond aren't what they're supposed to be. But like, you don't win premierships in the start of the year. Like you can lose them for sure, but you don't win them at the start of the year. 
just work your way into it. Don't stress. It's going to yeah. be okay. Like get to the important part and then win the rest. Like this isn't like the EP, uh, EPL, English Premier League. points, yeah. Yeah, it's not like the first past the post. Like peak at the right time. Um, so that year was kind of just like, once we won that first final, it was just kind of like, we're going all the way. Yeah. And because we had like basically a full house every game. So we had like, uh, we played Geelong, GWS, and then uh, Adelaide. It was like, so Geelong was our home game. No, uh, So Geelong was their home game, but it felt like a Richmond home game. It was so loud and so noisy. But like, I guess I was really fortunate in that we had such good system and so cemented in our minds that as soon as the ball was bounced, it was like, we're dialed in. Like, this is just like A to B, B to C, C to D, E to F, siren goes, we've won the game. Like, mm. it's kind of it becomes almost robotic because I was very similar to you in the first half of my career. I used to spew before every game because I was so nervous. But because And so game day became the worst part of my career. I hated game day. Yeah. But I loved the the sheds and the, the laugh and the banter and training and working hard and building yourself up to that point. And I know I needed the game to sort of like- Have the rest. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, I guess I have to play if yeah, you want me to. Seriously though, um, that's actually how it felt. Um, so yeah, once I like- I was so it was the grand final was a relief for me like it was just kind of like i feel satisfied and relieved like not this sense of like you know pride or anything like that it was more relief than anything um so yeah it was kind of like just this wave like geelong gws adelaide done that was just kind of like wow that was that seemed too easy because we knew our process so well what a star the big Rance man was. I was hoping he'd make a comeback on the show. He pretty alluded that pretty early that he wasn't going to do so. Um, I, think but, that, I, think that, I think that's why he thought he was coming in. Yeah. Just wanted no. to squash that right away. Yeah, he did. Hey, speaking of comebacks, Kate Simpson dropped some big news on the pod. And unfortunately, it didn't happen, but we're still you know, really looking forward to Cade getting on an AFL list in terms of coaching, um, whatever facet that may be. He's an absolute integral unit. I, I seriously, without saying this, no bias. I know he's a friend, but the, the footy IQ this bloke has, the person he is, any club should be going for him. Um, you would have learned that from the podcast. But this section, I suppose, is headliners, Sammy. We've made news this year. We're, we're no longer this little local show, is how he would say. We're... Back page. Maybe a new, we're maybe like, what's the step up from local before being global? Um, regional. Regional. Let's say regional. Okay. We're hitting regional now. Yeah. We're a regional show. Back page of the age. Back page. Little, little, little funny bit here. And there's a little bit something in this. Another guest of the show, Sam McClure, number one sports writer of the age, writes that article. Broke that story. Broke that story. We've had Sam on the show as well. It's come full circle. It's very exciting. So... Yeah, big one there. Um, have a listen to Cabe since and talking about the time, you know, if he'd be happy to make a comeback in footy. 2020 comes, uh, 18 seasons down, 342 games of AFL footy and then retirement. How'd that all come about? Talk us through what, you know, sort of transpired at the end of 2020. I still wish I was playing like 100%. Um, Do you still reckon you, you could play this year? Yeah. I think you definitely could. Yeah, that's and that's where it's funny, like even now – like for some stupid reason, I like I still run and flog myself, and and I in the back of my head, I'm like, I oh, just imagine if someone now when you've got like mid season drafts and all that sort of stuff, like I'm I'm pretty fit still. That if someone did just come knocking, I, wow. I would 
actually I'm ready. I wouldn't be like, oh fuck, I haven't done a thing in six months. And that's just a stupid thing in my head that I'm, I'm still fit. Like I still think, and it, it got worse as like round one happened. I was like, fuck, and I like went for this fucking massive run. <laughs> uh, that's incredible, man. And then round two again, like just I've I've hated watching the boys play. Um, so. Yeah, I don't know. Like, and even the way the games played as well this year is a lot different to last year, which again would probably suit. Feel like it would suit me as well. So, um, yeah, I haven't. I've, I'm dealing with retirement, but I haven't dealt with it as well. Um, so it's just a process that I'm going through. And yeah, I'm sure everyone's got. And I, it's funny. Like everyone's like, "Oh, it's good to retire with a little bit left in the tank." And I was just like, "What that?" fucking makes no sense to me like yeah. i'll fucking run i want to run that thing dry yeah it's like dying with money in the bank like if you've got money like you're gonna spend it aren't you you're not that's gonna- incredible man i think you've a lot of carlton supporters are going to be very rattled <laughs> and they're going to be very upset right now so in, in all seriousness though like if you if you a team was keen to come and play mid-season you'd, you'd actually consider it um yeah i think i'd consider it um i feel like i'd want like I wouldn't play just for the sake of playing. Like it yeah. need to be specific role. Would be like someone. Uh, no, I think just a team that's going to be challenging. Yeah, looking like they're going to play finals. Um, I'd yeah. As as like I'll always be a Carlton person. Whether I came out of retirement, whether I coach somewhere else, that doesn't matter. I'll always be Carlton. But I still have that. I still want, feel like I've got something left. I still want. I still have the desire to compete and all that sort of thing, um, and that hasn't gone away, um, which I don't know, like I thought it might. I thought once it sort of settled in that footy was going to be no longer, it would be a few months and then it would um, just, uh, just sort of disintegrate, um, but it's still there. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It's just sort of, yeah, I'm training. I'm, I'm, I'm ready, but, <laughs> Jesus. but I'm also like – I know, yeah. I get like – I go through stages like I'm smash myself, go for this massive run, and then I'm just like fucking snap out of it. You're a fucking has been. You're done. Um, so yeah, and I was like sort of fighting with the fact: do I play VFL this year just to see? And like I don't know. It's just mate. If you go play VFL, I'll come. <laughs> I'll come play, and I'll play on your man again, as I did for for six years. See, mate, I'm you I'm that I'm that aroused to hearing that you are still keen <laughs> to play football. It's not funny. I I genuinely not just saying, but you, I know you from a you know a, a long stint um, together, and fuck to hear that. It's it's exciting. If any, a lot of teams listen to this show. So <laughs> this is the biggest sports podcast in Australia. Imagine, so there's gonna be people imagine listening. If you got me drafted again. What a story. Jesus Christ. I, I don't even know what to say. Thank you, Simba. Thank you, Simba. Now, big headlines again. Tom Brown, one of our friends here at Dylan Friends, ran with this one on Channel 7 Live when Carco came on the show and talked about the four Ps. He said, you know, whenever you're around these four things, the piss, the punt, the penis, and the powder, trouble is near. I think he was right. Have a listen. I remember those chats where you'd sit down at the, at the end of the year and you say Christmas bake and, and the coach would be pretty strong on this. Boys, look after yourself. Um, you know, no, no fights, no injuries. Get things right. Um, do you have those chats with your players? Yeah, on a regular basis and within our club and this will now become outside of our club, we talk about the four Ps, uh, which is the piss, the punt, the penis and the powder. Yep. Um, and where there's, where there's strife in anyone's life, by and large, one of those four is going to get you. Yep. 
Um, and it's three of them are legal. One of them's illegal, uh, but three three of them are legal. So th- certainly the legal ones, it's just like, well, you're allowed to have a punt and you're allowed to go out and have a drink and um, and you're allowed to you know, spend spend time with a, uh, a lady or male partner. But um, but if you do those things excessively and foolishly, then you're going to find yourself in a little bit of trouble. And so um, we talk about our guys just on a regular basis um, and not always me to the players and the players yep. to me. Sometimes just breaking groups and just have a chat about where in this next two or three weeks you might find yourself in a vulnerable position and uh, think about it before you go into the uh, into the scenario rather than reflect afterwards. Um, because the reflecting afterwards might be a different scenario than actually giving it some thought beforehand. Um, and that includes, you know, you're going to have a drink, you're going to drive. Um, and, uh, you know, if you go, if you go into a, uh, an environment with mates, uh, who are the mates? Do they understand the footy environment? Do they understand your professionalism, the, the background, all that sort of stuff of what you do and what your expectations are? And um, so just it's just a little bit around preparation and thought and, um, you know, we're, we're dealing with young men. They're not going to get it right all the time. We know that there's uh, mistakes to be made and um, and many make them, including me. Uh, I made plenty over my journey but um, what we try to do is now pass on our wisdom of the mistakes mm. that we've made and hope that we can prepare our guys as best we can to avoid some of them. And there's there's pitfalls everywhere but uh, by and large it's held us in pretty good stead. Um, but... Um, and we have a bit of fun with it too. It, and it, it also just uh, normalises it a little bit because what these lads, young lads are going through, um, you know, I come from a family of boys, so, you know, I was, I was, I was the youngest of, of a big family and, um, you know, whatever's, whatever's been transgressed has probably been transgressed in my family. And um, so uh, I just try to pass on as best I can uh, the wisdom of our ways. Hey, as we said earlier on the show, a big thing this year for me is broadening out, talking to new people, learning new things from some absolute switched on people, life experience. And we had Mark Wales on who had this in full, uh, the, the author of Survivor, Life in the SAS, who was an absolute star. If you haven't listened to this show, please do, because this bloke's not only he's a national hero really like the things that he's done and the the things that he's risked he risks his own life um to you know keep the safety of australia and defend our country is pretty incredible he's a brilliant guy he's an absolutely awesome guy after the show he probably hung around for another hour had a few beers with us he didn't want to leave yeah. he was an absolute champion and we didn't want him to leave either we will literally like please stay um, but he's an absolute star and yeah he spoke about some incredible things this was a segment of his show where he spoke about some really close calls that he came into with uh, some of the Taliban in his first tour what I suppose are, are some of the stories that you would reflect on now being like some of the most intense uh, tours or, or missions that, that you were a part of um, one for me was one of the first missions I did uh, on my first deployment over there it was uh, we were asked to clear the Chora Valley and it was in late 2007. And I talk about this actually in the book because it was the first time we, we ran into a heavy combat um, on a mission. And basically we went in there to run this clearance. There was kind of 80 to 100 Taliban, I think they were saying. And our team was doing all the advanced force operations. So we were going behind enemy lines, looking at what the enemy were doing, 
trying to figure out where they were. So that when the mission came, we were, we were much ahead of the curve already. Um, and on the first morning, we kind of inserted in the dark and got set up. And um, in the morning, all the clearance force landed and took out and started clearing through the, uh, the, the section of the valley that we were in. And uh, me and my team picked up and went to another part of the valley further south to put in basically an ambush. And as we're moving down there, we ran into uh, Taliban kind of defensive positions. And um, that started a battle that, that went for, for a long time. And we were, it took us till, that was in the morning. We didn't get out until that night. So we were in there for a long time and uh, ended up being a heavy battle. Um, one of my team leaders was shot and killed in the opening kind of minutes of the battle. And, I mean, we train for that all the time. We say, if we have a man down, this is what we're going to do. We're going to move him. And, and so we had to change our whole mission kind of on the fly to, to try and get this guy out who'd been, who'd been shot and badly wounded. So it was full on. It was full on. How – look, I, I suppose I know the answer to this, but how do you deal with that, like, sudden change straight away? Do you go straight into, like, autopilot of training? Is that how – like, you're so much in the moment that you go, fuck, this is what we need to do next? Yeah, I think that there's almost like a cutout switch in your mind. There's so much happening that you're like, all right, there's a lot happening that I'm just not going to deal with right now. We're just going to do, we're going to do one thing, and then we're going to do this thing. And you're looking five seconds into the future. Sometimes you're just like, I'm just going to survive through this bit. I'm going to jump in this ditch, and then I'm going to, uh, you know, speak to this guy. And you, you're making decisions in tiny increments because you know to survive, you've just got to get to that next step. And then once we were kind of secure, that's when you start thinking about how to move troops around and how you're going to suppress the enemy and how you're going to get helicopters in. And and that's, I guess, where you go from just trying to survive to, all right, now we, we really have to come up with a plan to to defeat what we're dealing with. How did you – are you allowed to go into context of how you did get out of that scenario? Like what, what ended yeah. up transpiring? Um, so what we did was – we all pushed up to this kind of uh, this low ditch called an aqueduct. It's it's kind of knee height or waist height, and it's just enough cover to get in there and get protection from gunfire. So we were in there, um, we were pinned down, dealing with a casualty, and we got there were two Apache gunships. These are attack helicopters. They're above us and on the Australian side, or were they from the Taliban? No, Australian side. Yep. I'd be worried if the Taliban were driving those. Things yeah, cause yeah. <laughs> we'd be in real trouble. But. Um, we, we had attack helicopters above us and some of my guys was talking directly to the helicopters and marking the enemy positions with smoke. And so I, all this was happening as I was trying to move troops in place. And uh, I remember hearing the first kind of uh, cannon strike go in on the tree line, kind of maybe about 100 metres away. It was pretty close. And uh, the tree line just bloody erupted in, in all this heavy cannon fire. And... Um, I remember seeing going, holy shit, if they're that close, then we're, we're in a bit of trouble. And so the, the Apaches were trying to suppress the enemy that were on the other side of us. And um, I kind of remember saying, hey, I think they're going to come around our flank. I remember talking to the, to the guy next to me. I think they're going to come around this, this flank in the river. And luckily, one of the guys in the team had a good idea about putting a sniper team up on, that, on, on basically a little hill, little section of high ground about thousand meters away to our left and they were protecting our flank they could see people coming up the river while we were in the thick kind of green belt thick vegetation and um, they started shooting in support of us so we had kind of uh, gunships firing on one flank and snipers firing the other and I could hear their kind of heavy rounds coming down the valley and um, and they were they were landing close to us like 
very close. I could I could kind of see the trees moving as the as the bullets were coming in from our snipers, and I was thinking they're bloody close because it's hard to see. Right, you're trying to stay low. It is hard to see enemy to your front, so you're trained to shoot at areas where you think they might be hiding. So we were we were basically just trying to get space and, and suppress the enemy so we could move a bit. And eventually we did were able to kind of suppress them enough that we could move this guy back who'd been hit and um, bring helicopters in to try and evacuate him. And the helicopters that flew in, this is in broad daylight now, the helicopters that flew in flew over the Taliban formation and they got they got shot up. Um, you know, they, they took about, I think it was about seven rounds, one helicopter took seven rounds. And um, yeah, they landed, and we got we got this this guy on and got him flying back to base. But um, unfortunately, he'd he'd already died. He was he was badly wounded. So yeah, it was it was full on. It was a full on day, and that was the first time really that I'd been in a, a battle like that. And it was uh, it was a tough day. And that sums it up. That sums it up, my friends and family and loyal loyal people. I thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. It sounds like I'm retiring here. I'm not. It's really, it's just a mid-season review, so I'm not going anywhere. Um, we're just we're just reviewing the first half of the season, but I'm getting emotional. Uh, but all seriousness, thank you. It's been real. It's been good. Um, can't wait to just keep backing this up. You know what happens? Strong start. You've got to keep going. It's just setting the tone, in lack for a better word, first of the year. It's fair to say we have set the tone with this first half of the year for the second half of the year, and we've got to keep going because you don't win premierships in January, do you? It's June. Yeah. Okay, we don't want him in June either. So thank you so much. We've got some massive things planned um, for the rest of the year. As we said, I've teased this for a while now. I've just, oh, I'm angry at myself. But Teach Me Please is on the horizon. It's very, very close. Um, If you don't know what that is, I'm going to be doing a new episode, uh, weekly, fortnightly, uh, whatever it works out to be, um, about a random segment that I want to learn more about. How to buy a house, cryptocurrency, how to do it, how to start a podcast, how to ride a fucking bike, whatever it is, whatever you want to know, uh, we're going to be doing it. We're going to be speaking to experts in the field. It's going to be really exciting. So pumped for that. Uh, we're going to be doing live footy friends, hopefully get this ready to go for finals um, and do some live streaming of games and really get around that with the boys, which will be fantastic. So excited for that. And I think I alluded to this earlier, Sammy, but in some really big news, We've got a new studio space that we're moving into in the next couple of weeks. It's getting uh, finalised. We're putting on some fresh coat of paint. It is it is big. It is huge. Um, and we're going to have everything based out of there. So hopefully the production goes to the next level. So please, guys, keep sending in those guest recommendations. You absolutely love it. Got some big episodes planned. Um, not even lying to you there. We ha- I really have got some big episodes planned. In a couple of weeks as well, we hit 100 shows. Sadly, we won't be able to celebrate this the way we wanted to. COVID's sort of struck some things up here and, and it's disappointed us. We had a big party planned. We had an event space nearly booked and ready to go, but we're going to be rescheduling this. It's going to be so good. Really excited to get to meet you all in person at the live events. And hopefully, Sammy, if COVID opens up, we're going to be getting around Australia. We're not just staying in Victoria. We are a national show now. We we love traveling around. We're coming everywhere. We're going to WA, NT, Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia, Tasmania, Victoria, and ACT. We can't forget about the government. We're going to go there and put a smile on their doll. They've been through a bit. So, yeah, sending all my love to you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for your love and support for the first half of the year. I'm going to shut up now. I'll see you next week. If that wasn't enough for you and you want even more, you're in luck. Dylan Friends is now on Patreon. Dylan Best Friends. If you'd like to learn more, you can head to patreon.com forward slash Dylan Friends or you can head to the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends podcast. If you liked the show, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, leave a review or even share with your friends. 
The show is produced by myself and Sam Bonza. Damon Jackman from Creative Edge Films is responsible for audio and visual production. The show is recorded at the Dylan Friends Studio in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends podcast, please email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.